0: You're listening to the UnSiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world.
1: So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
0: Hi, welcome to UnSiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Raj Raghunathan, who is a professor at University of Texas, Austin, at the business school there. He's also the author of this book right here, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy?, which has a corresponding website, which we'll we'll link to, and also a Coursera course. So you can actually go and take the course, which Raj created for his business school students, all about happiness. And I mean, look, your background is in, in consumer behavior. Your background is in, I guess, what we might think of as, as marketing. And then at some point you decided, teaching MBAs, teaching business school students, that You wanted to offer a course on happiness now i want to hear this story i've always been interested in this field of happiness studies and i remember when i first started teaching i was teaching an operations course a decision science course and i started incorporating more and more material this must have been 20 years ago from the discipline of happiness and now i incorporate this stuff into my course on on the workplace but i was wondering what drove you to create the course and i guess the other Major question I would have for you is and it's baked into the title here which is that economic students business students these are people that we study optimization we study how to balance things and integrate them and ultimately achieve objectives and and yet even though business students are really good at achieving objectives like profitability or innovation or whatever and even income they seem to be not terribly good at, at pursuing what supposedly is the overarching objective and I presume that's sort of the motivation
1: and why you created the course because you saw this disconnect in your students. Absolutely, yeah, you nailed it. I realize that everybody wants to be happy and I think we tend to make the assumption that people who are successful by conventional yardsticks of money and power and fame, status, et cetera, are happier. And I think that assumption plays itself out in what we seek out of life. And I think that if you ask most people what they want, particularly, let's say, teenagers, undergraduate students, they would tell you that I want to be successful. And if you ask them why, they'd probably tell you because that's what's going to make me happy. But the truth is, as you mentioned, a lot of the smart and successful people, people in the business world, for example, are very good at achieving extrinsic goals of those goals of success and fame and money and power status, etc. But not necessarily very good at these intrinsic goals of happiness and building great relationships and having a sense of ease about life and pursuing meaning and things like that, and which is why I created this course. After I created the course, it it turned out that there is a relationship between being happy and those conventional yardsticks of fame, money, power, etc., in that happier people are more likely to achieve those goals anyway. And so it's a win-win strategy to prioritize happiness because not only do you get to increase the goal that everyone's ultimately after, but it also ends up enhancing your chances of achieving those goals that you thought would lead to happiness.
0: I mean, I think we're the only country in the world that has the pursuit of happiness baked into our constitutional DNA, but I wouldn't describe us as being a particularly happy country, right? Certainly on all those metrics, there are happier countries out there and many of which are much less successful at achieving the other goals. I guess Venezuela used to be among the happiest countries. I'm I'm not so sure if it is right now, but it was never like the wealthiest country. And so I'm wondering, there are two possibilities here. One is that by aggressively pursuing happiness, you inevitably fail to achieve it. This is kind of like the butterfly theory where happiness is like the butterfly. And and if you try to grab it, it's going to always fly away. But you also point to this idea of kind of medium maximization, right? Like where we mistake the, the intermediate goals for the final goal, and I think you alluded to that, but again, that's something where I think business school students should be particularly sensitive to because we're always aware that if you pursue these intermediate KPIs like revenue or cost or whatever, that they come at the expense of, of other things and that ultimately a good organization never substitutes some intermediate metric for a final metric. So why is it that we do that? Why is it that we suffer from this kind of medium maximization or substitution of intermediate metrics for final metrics?
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of uh, reasons for it. The original medium maximization paper, which came out in 2003, Chris Shees is the primary investigator on that paper from University of Chicago. Basically, they argue that we seem to prioritize goals that are more quantitative in nature, as opposed to more difficult to quantify and qualitative in nature. And money is perhaps the most quantifiable extrinsic goal that most of us seek out there. And it's easy to check your bank balance and come up with a very specific number down to two decimals, right? Which makes it attractive. One of the reasons why we go work out at the gym rather than going cycling outside or going running outside, a lot of us is because when we go on the treadmill, we know exactly how many miles we ran and you know how many steps we took and how many calories we burned. There's something attractive about it. And that's one reason why we oftentimes do this media maximization, whereby we substitute the intermediary goal for the end goal that we seek. Another reason I think is that society in general tends to seem to value these intermediary goals a lot. So if you go into a room and you tell a new person who's entering the room, look, there is the richest guy in the whole room. And then there is the happiest guy in the whole room who's a different guy. Chances are that many people are going to be fascinated by the richest guy and want to talk to him and want to find out the secrets of how they achieved it and so on. So, we as a society, particularly perhaps in capitalistic societies, tend to prioritize money and these extrinsic goals more. And that might be another reason, just the peer pressure or social kind of norm of what goals are more important. And I think on top of all this, what also happens is that many of these mediums, these kind of intermediary goals do in fact increase our happiness levels, but only temporarily. And so what happens is that we get to experience, particularly if we are not so wealthy, for example, that achieving a higher income or raise in income does increase our happiness levels, but it doesn't last for too long. I mean, of course, below the poverty line and below basic needs it does have a lasting effect on your happiness but once you are above that basic level of income then more money doesn't increase your happiness on a sustained and permanent basis it does increase it temporarily but you do remember the temporary boost in happiness and so almost like the pavlovian dog right that's conditioned to kind of salivate the bell i think that more money just makes us happy and then we just go salivating after the money Without really realizing that there's no long term effect of this. This is a never ending game that we're going to constantly chase it and then the goalpost keeps moving and we're not quite aware of it. Many of us are not quite aware of it. So lots of reasons why we end up exhibiting this media maximization. Yeah, you didn't talk much in the book about the potential
0: evolutionary explanations for a lot of this. I mean, you you allude to it. It wasn't really the main emphasis, but you do talk about this hedonic adaptation or the hedonic treadmill where these short term goals that we extrapolate them and it seems like organizations can also exploit these in the same way that maybe our, our genes exploit these so you're working towards the promotion and you you think that the promotion is going to make you happier and then you know you get the promotion and, and you, you celebrate but then you know you kind of adapt to that and now you're, you're chasing after the next promotion but people don't seem to learn from that they don't look back and say hey wait a second that, you know that last promotion it didn't really do much for me It's almost like we're genetically programmed to be kind of stupid and non-reflective. Like we don't learn from experience. It's like a blind spot. Because normally we would learn from experience, right? Where you touch the stove and it hurts for days afterwards or whatever. You'd, You'd say, okay, no more touching of the stove.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. I don't know if organizations are manipulative in that way necessarily or gaming it and throwing these kind of carrots at us or dangling them once in a while to keep us working and chasing those, I think that just the way that organizations are generally structured, like they're medical, right? And so there's one place at the top, and then there's fewer at the top. And then more and more as you go down to the bottom, over time, people get some subset gets promoted. And so that's the way the game is set up. There's just one place at the top. And so by the nature of that structure, fewer people get promoted as time goes on. And it is true that the higher you are in status, the better off you are overall. And and I'm talking about long-term well-being. You know, there are these studies called the Whitehall studies. I kind of mention it in the book. I don't know if you got a chance to read about them, but yeah, I talk about them a lot in my class. You do, okay? Yeah. So you know, in baboon societies, too, you know, the baboons that are higher up, mm-hmm. the alpha males tend to be less stressed out overall. So there is something to it. I think it is the chase of the superiority that lowers our happiness levels. So, and this is a trick that life has played on us in a sense. It dangles the carrot and getting the carrot actually puts you in a better off space, but chasing of the carrot lowers your happiness, right? So this is complex. So you might question why was, you know, one of the rules of life like that, which is complex and almost subversive. But if you do understand that, that it is good to achieve things. It is good to be richer, all things being equal. It's better off, you're better off being wealthier than less wealthy and so on. But it's the pursuit of it. it is the kind of mindset that you adopt when you're chasing it and being feverish about it and engaging in social comparisons to do it and badmouthing other people being Machiavellian in your chase of success that is what lowers happiness levels and so if you can figure out a way in which you do arrive at a point of being wealthier or you know more able or masterful or whatever uh, higher status but without any of the accompanying kind of negatives that generally go with it then you're the best win-win kind of a position and a lot of the book is about that and i think that one of the kind of big abstract messages that emerges out of it is that when you do have a goal that makes you happy You might be better off not chasing that goal too directly be it love be it success be it happiness the idea is to kind of put in place a bunch of things that enhance the chances of achieving that goal but not in too direct a manner so if you talk about success rather than chase that superiority or engage in social comparisons and chase that success too directly if you just focus on what you're good at and what you enjoy doing then you naturally will find yourself in a place, maybe it takes some time, but you'll find yourself in a place where you in fact enjoy that success. And it's come now not at a cost of your happiness or doing things artificially in an inorganic fashion, it's come in a, in a very organic way.
0: Well, what I really liked about the book is that you basically say there's kind of a good, side and a bad side to all of these motivations so at the end of the book you talk about the mba i love that i'm going to steal this right it's because you know when we talk about what makes people fulfilled in in their jobs we talk about mastery and we talk about belonging and we talk about autonomy and in hr literature it's like look this is what everybody wants right everybody wants mastery they everybody wants belonging everybody wants autonomy but each of those things There's kind of like a a good version and a bad version. And, you know, when we think about mastery, one of the reasons why people are seeking out superiority, part of it is just purely about status and the ability to kind of dominate others and boss others around. But you can achieve mastery in other ways. And I'm wondering also, at the end of the book, you talk about how you can choose your surroundings so as to alter your, your emotional experience. So with respect to this idea of chasing superiority, I mean, it's well known that the higher you up in the status, the more relaxed you can become. And Robert Frank has written extensively about this. Is there any other way that we can achieve that without having to be at the top of the pyramid? I teach a strategy class and I ask my students, okay, how many of you are comfortable being just VPs and how many of you want to be CEOs? And everybody's like, oh, I want to be CEO. And it's like, well, What's wrong with being being a VP, right? Like you still have plenty of mastery potential right there in that job. So how can we identify the good way and the bad way of achieving mastery and belonging and, and autonomy?
1: I see two questions there. And one of those is what you ended with, which is that, you know, all these goals are important and there are kind of good ways of achieving them. Good meaning that you don't have to sacrifice happiness in the process of trying to achieve them and there are bad ways of achieving them where Your happiness is sacrificed. And then the other question is that let's say that somehow you don't have a great deal of mastery, or you don't have the accoutrements of mastery, right? You're not at the very top of an organization, or let's say that you don't have very good relationships, or you don't have a whole lot of autonomy. Can you still be happy despite that, despite not being a CEO, despite being just a VP and so on? So let me tackle the first question first, which is, you know, for each of these three goals. And there are these seemingly two alternative routes. One of them is good and one of them is bad. And I think that the chances that you're going to take the good path toward mastery and the good path being that you identify what you're good at, what Sir Ken Robinson calls your element, that is things that you're good at and you enjoy doing. You might call them your passions. You identify what those are and then systematically work your way toward doing more of those things in your life. And this doesn't necessarily mean that you jump ship and go from whatever job you had that you hate to doing another job that you, you think you're passionate about. That might be a little bit impractical, but... You talk about, the use this example of a guy quitting his job as an executive to work in a flower shop or something, right? Yeah, like an origami shop or a scuba diving shop yeah. or whatever. And a lot of people fantasize about a life like that, like in, in a career, so to speak. And then they quickly discover that they're not no good at it or, you know, there's problems even there and there's politics and they quickly kind of beat a hasty retreat and reapply to the old job that they left kind of a thing. So I do think that, you know, I have more practical strategies to kind of job craft. So find many ways in which you can nudge your current job in the direction in which you find it to be more meaningful. And even if you do want to jump ship, I think that it's better that if it happens organically Let's say that you do think that your passion is scuba diving and you're currently, let's say, an accountant. Then what you might do is volunteer for a scuba diving shop, right? And when you do some scuba diving, you know, check with the people out there, you know, is it okay if I stay over for a week and just observe what you guys do and maybe even help out a little bit? And most people would actually welcome that. Your instinct might be to think that why would they want me as a volunteer? You know, they would think that I'm a disruption or might even be a competition to them. But most people actually, you know, if you're genuinely passionate about something, they welcome your involvement in what they do. And so if you organically do it that way, then it seems less risky because then you would get to know the ins and outs of that business. It's not just like you're always scuba diving. If you open a scuba diving shop, you're also maintaining accounts and you're managing supplies and you have to deal with irate customers and so on and so forth. And so you get to see the whole gamut. So that is the idea that you identify what your passion is, what your element is, and then You slowly but surely do more and more of that in your life. And then that is the way to mastery that is a little more sustainable, a little more, you know, doesn't sacrifice happiness. And likewise, you know, I outline strategies for belonging. In brief, it is to kind of serve other people, be compassionate, be really, truly, deeply, authentically interested in others' lives rather than only for strategic reasons. And if you do that, then you're going to find yourself in better situations in terms of relationships. And with autonomy, the better way to gain control is to seek and become better, more skilled at internal control, as I call it, control over your own mind, et cetera, as opposed to controlling outcomes or other people. So with regard to your second question, can you be happy even if you don't quite achieve mastery, or even if you don't quite have the sense of belonging that you want out of your life and so on? I do think that you can. And I think a lot of it involves gaining this, what I call the abundance mindset at the end of the book. And basically It is to focus on the part of the glass that's half full, basically. So everyone's life has problems. Everyone's life has also good things going on. And which of these two things do we predominantly focus on? Are we constantly focusing on the problems and trying to tackle them and address them? Or are we also taking some time to be thankful for all the things that are going positively in our lives? And the argument here is that the more you are focusing on the things that are going well in your life, or at least taking some time every day to appreciate the good things in your life, the less desperate you're going to be for many things. And, you know, a large kind of a big theme that emerges, especially in marketing, this is where a lot of these things connect back to marketing, is what's called compensatory consumption. You want something because you're lacking it more than because you truly want it. And so if you're lacking a sense of being appreciated, or you're low in self-esteem, or you're low in terms of quality relationships, that's when you're going to be really desperate for mastery and for belonging and so on. And that desperation, it might make it more likely that you follow the wrong path toward them, that you start chasing superiority or you start being desperate for love and so on, or seeking external control. And so the more you remind yourself of ways in which things are already okay, and then you're grateful for them, it centers you and makes you more harmonious inside of you. So you become less desperate for these things, which then makes it more likely that you are open to and more likely to pursue the more win-win path, seek passions and seek to serve other people and so on. So that's in a nutshell how you could be happy even though you're not quite there yet. And I think it also increases the chances that you do get there (laughs) later. A VP who is like constantly complaining and politicking and somehow trying to claw their way to the very top I think at some point is, even if they do achieve it, they're not going to be as happy and they're going to be toppled down again. And the chances of them rising are also lower because other people don't like such people, right? I mean, people who constantly complain as opposed to somebody who's just as able, but generally has good things to say about other people and seems authentic about it, not just strategic about it. I think that we generally tend to like people who are problem solvers and have an optimistic attitude and are general rays of sunshine as opposed to wet blankets.
0: Yeah, and I think the key framework you use to distinguish between the kind of good route and the bad route is this zero-sum approach versus a pie-increasing approach. So the assumption that the pie is fixed and anything that you get is going to necessarily come at the expense of of someone else versus there's win-wins out there. In negotiations, that's sort of the key dichotomy. But I'm wondering if, is there some environmental rationality? There are situations where the world is zero-sum. You talk about how the givers tend to be happier than the takers and there's evidence that the causal arrow goes from the giving to the happiness and you mentioned that the givers are the folks that tend to climb the ladder but we all know of organizations where that's not true right we all know of organizations where it's the jerks that (laughs) rise to the top and the givers get exploited right you talk about trust and how you can be super happy by trusting people but hey I've lent money to a lot of people and never seen it again. (laughs) I've lent uh, vehicles to people and never saw them again. I've lent furniture to people, never seen it again. And if you veer too far, I mean, not only is there like an optimum and you you talk about this optimum and and how you have to be very judicious about how much giving you do, but how much of it is kind of dependent on context. And I imagine that in certain anarchic environments, like Mad Max world, right? If you're the one that's out there giving, you're going to wind up very quickly exploited away. Are these rules that work best in well-ordered environments and well-managed organizations and well-acculturated groups? And if you have this mindset, do you also then have to seek out environments and organizations where you can flourish with this perspective?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? And I think that certainly we can all think of Contexts in which the name of the game is superiority seeking. And in fact, there are constraints on resources. And so those with a scarcity mindset are more likely to quote unquote win. I think of those contexts as contexts in which the most important purpose is actually survival. So if you kind of rewind back to, we didn't live on those eras, of course, but we know of them back to the caveman dwellings. I'm even
0: thinking, like, if you have a stack ranking system in an organization, like you're basically setting it up in such a way that the givers are going to fail, right? I mean, they're going to ultimately get squeezed out in many ways, just because you've designed it that way.
1: Right. I don't know if the givers are going to fail, but there is certainly scarcity in terms of resources. I think that nobody is going to design a system where they say, okay, the more compassionate you are to everybody, we're going to fire you. That would be a givers fail kind of a system, but the more selfish... You are, you're going to succeed. I don't think any organization would say that explicitly out. But if you've seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, I use a clip from that in my game theory class. Yeah, so that's a system in which it's very clear what the objectives are. You sell and the more you sell, the more your chances that you're going to get up on the board and you're going to be employee of the month and so on. You're going to be promoted. And that is definitely kind of a incentive scheme in which I think it's going to drive out an abundance orientation in general. And I think that it makes it less likely that givers are going to want to hang out there. And even if they did, you know, that they're going to succeed. You Imagine that I gave away my leads to another person, Al Pacino, he's going to devour me, right? I mean, he's going to take up all those leads and not give any of his leads and achieve more sales and so on. So that kind of a system definitely seems to reward more takers than givers. And I imagine that there are quite a few organizations like that. But what's remarkable about Adam Grant's book is that he did look at sales. He did look at the medical practice field. He did look at lots of fields. And across these fields in general, the big kind of punchline finding is that givers tend to succeed. At the face of it, it seems like that surely can't be true. Okay. But When you kind of drill down into the details of why it happens, then you start to realize that actually, you know what, maybe it is worthy of consideration, this theory. So you could start with asking yourself, who would I rather hang out with? Somebody who only cares about himself or herself or somebody who also cares about me, right? I think very, very few people would say I'd like to hang out with people who only care about themselves. If that is true, then what follows is that who would I rather controlling for ability, right? I mean, So obviously we want to kind of promote people or that's the most important thing perhaps. They're more skilled or more able in the job, but controlling for that, who would I rather promote? Who would I say good things about? Is it somebody who's an asshole who's only taking care of their own interests or somebody who also brings along other people with them, who's more democratic in the way in which they function in meetings and takes into account everybody's opinion rather than my way or the highway kind of people. And so then again, I mean, I think that you would discover that. Yeah, I think I'd say more positive things about the person who's actually genuinely a good person. And we live in a hyper interconnected world. You got to know of me through LinkedIn or Google or whatever. And we are kind of all more or less connected in less than six six degrees nowadays, I think, than used to be the case. And so when you genuinely come across somebody who is a positive person, who's done good things, even if you don't really think they're genuine and just being strategic, I think you hold more positive opinions of people who for example, come and guest lecture in your class and then receive a thank you email as opposed to somebody who doesn't even do that. Yeah. So we like people who are nice. That's human nature. We're highly social as a species. And so when you take that into account, it just makes sense that controlling for abilities, givers are going to set themselves up in society in a way that there's going to be pools of goodwill that they've built up in other people. And so when the time comes for a promotion to happen or firing to happen or what have you, I think that they tend to stand a better chance in this hyper-interconnected world that they'll be promoted or they'll be not fired. And so you add all that up. It does not necessarily mean that, you know, when you look at the CEOs or each one of them is a giver. No, that's not true, right? But it's all probabilistic and it's a stochastic. It's not like deterministic. It's not like the natural world, right? We're not stones. But in the social world, I think that on average controlling for everything else, if you're a, truly a giver, and you take care of other people, but not to the extent where you're sacrificing your own emotional bank or resources. So you got to be like an otherish giver rather than a selfless giver. But if you do that, then there's a higher chance that you get promoted. So that's the idea. I don't know. Honestly, I mean, you know, it's tempting to say that there's surely lots of different industries in which givers are decimated. But I really think that more and more, almost in every industry, anything that involves really mental work and creativity and things like that and connections are important and networking is important. I think that the givers are more likely to succeed. I think maybe in the slums of Bombay, but there too, you go there and and you see like huge amounts of camaraderie and taking care of each other. Maybe in the military, in war zones, perhaps the takers succeed more or more likely to survive. So any context in which the goal is more one of thriving and flourishing as opposed to surviving, people of the abundance might have a bit of an edge.
0: Well, one of the other interesting observations that you make in the book, and you go back to numerous studies that highlight this, is how there seems to be a divergence between our view of people in general and how people actually behave, right? So with respect to say trust, we tend to think that most people are less trustworthy than they they really are. This is also puzzling because one would expect to kind of learn over time, but I guess the information that we have access to, it's either that we have biased information, I think you highlight this, like in media, media kind of emphasizes the negative but it may also be that we're doing some classification and we attach costs to false positives and false negatives and so we're hypersensitive to having say a false negative when it comes to detecting a cheater or a bad person but it does seem to be a consistent pattern where where everyone is more pessimistic with respect to their
1: peers and colleagues so what really is driving that do you think I think you hit all the points for why it is that we are pessimistic i think that we tend to remember episodes in which our trust is violated more than episodes in which our trust is validated. If you think about a typical day, you know, there's lots of examples of your trust being validated. When you're driving on the road, you trust that the other person is not going to suddenly veer into your road and smash your car. So I actually kept a record of all the times in which not necessarily trust, but people behaved in a quote unquote good way versus a bad way over a month. And it was just remarkable the number of times in which people kind of seemed to go out of their way to help me once my eyes were really trained to notice it. Right from, you know, people kind of almost tripping over themselves to collect my bags at the baggage claim to people opening doors for me to even being willing to pay or not want me to pay a little amount of money because I'd run out of it. So just lots of examples of people just being genuinely nice. I want to sit with my family in an airplane and i go there and i'm kind of seated elsewhere and i ask that person you know do you mind moving in general people say yes to these things and yet we walk away feeling that people in general can't be trusted and i don't know if i mentioned it in the book but i remember this one statistic from bowling for columbine i think it was this uh, michael moore documentary in which he mentions this statistic he says that if you look at homicides in the united states from 1980s you know which was really violent in the United States. People don't necessarily know that or, or remember it. I remember it. You, you know, <laughs> to the 2000s, the crime rates had come down significantly. But I think he says like some 20% or 30% had come down. And yet the coverage of crime had gone up sixfold in that period. So what that's resulted in is that people's perception of how unsafe the environment is and how untrustworthy people are and how prone to violence they are, our perceptions have increased on those dimensions. When in fact, maybe people haven't really changed. Maybe it's just that the policing is more efficient or for whatever reason, crime rates have actually come down. So it's just weird how we're not accurately calibrated.
0: Yeah, from the outside, if you're like, oh, hey, you know, be an optimist, be mindful, be trustful, be generous, be half full instead of half empty. I think an outside critic might say, well, you're just trying to fake it till you make it. This is a placebo. This is like wishful thinking and so forth. But I think you're really arguing that, no, no, this is really about being realistic. This is about being scientific. This is more about being objective. It's about understanding the world in a more detached way and, and seeing things as they really are to some degree.
1: Yes, especially when it comes to the dimension of trust. I would say. And, you know, I talk in the book about trusting other people. We tend to be more cynical of others than we really should be if we were accurately calibrated, but also trusting life in general, which becomes a little more of a abstract topic. And who knows what the truth is? How much can you trust life? How much can you trust that good things are going to happen to you ultimately? But what seemingly gotten a lot of support is this idea that the more you believe that good things are going to happen to you, that you're a lucky person and there's meaning behind everything that happens, even if you can't see it immediately, the more likely it is that you're actually going to become resilient and become more successful at the end of the day. And so scientifically, it seems that if one of your objectives is to be more successful, be more resilient, you should adopt that more, what might seem on the face of it as a more delusional approach to life, which is to give credit to people, even if you can't see it immediately, give them the benefit of the doubt and give life the benefit of the doubt. You know, you encounter a negative event rather than looking at it superficially as a negative event, kind of look a little bit deeper into, okay, can this negative event be actually a positive event disguised as a negative event? Could there be downstream consequences that unfold as a result of this negative event that eventually turn out to be positive? And when you have your eyes open for doors of opportunity like that, invariably, you'll notice them. And if you don't notice the doors of opportunity, then almost by definition, you're not (laughs) going to walk into them, right? But if you do notice them, you're going to take advantage of them. And then you start to notice that, wow, you know, some of these negative things are actually miraculously positive things that have happened in my life. That if I'd been down in the dumps and sinking in that negativity, I wouldn't have even noticed that these positive things happen because of those negative things. Certainly, there is the category of people that is delusional, right? I'm not saying that the ideal point is infinity just walk around naked and think that you know your clothes no i think that there is an element of being accurately calibrated that is very important here of being quote-unquote rational that's very important here but given that our starting point is according to a lot of research and findings on average we tend to be more cynical about people about life than we could be if our objective was not just to be happy but to be successful it just makes rational sense that we swing the pendulum just a little bit, maybe 10% over to the other side and then see what happens and then experiment with it. And then if it turns out that, Hey, nothing bad happened, the sky didn't fall on my head. People didn't start suddenly start cheating me left, right, and center. Then you start to discover, Hey, maybe this is not a bad way to be, you know?
0: Yeah. You're kind of referencing the good thing, bad thing, who knows approach, which is to suspend your judgments until you have a little bit more insight. In that section of the book you talk about this mind addiction. And I was wondering if you could dig into that because you know I think that might be something that the kind of students that we work with are particularly prone to especially as a result of the teaching that we do, right? Where we we encourage people to distrust their gut. We teach people to be very suspicious of snap reactions and if it's not well thought through then they need to kind of be be wary of it. But I think you're emphasizing that this could sometimes veer into what we call mind addiction.
1: Right. I think the suspicion that a lot of us have of snap judgments and our instincts and our emotions is built up over time through our education as you rightly pointed out you know we are kind of guilty of perpetrating that way of making decisions and the way that i characterize mind addiction is that it is a manifestation of a deeply held belief that i'm going to be able to arrive at an even better solution to any challenge or problem i have if i just think a little more about it And as it turns out, that's a good rule in many, many, many situations. But it also turns out that there are many situations in which you could potentially overthink a problem and you are in a worse off place if you think more about it than you would have been had you taken a decision based off of your gut instinct or your emotional inputs. It's one of those things that's a little bit tricky. And I think that most of us seek clarity It's much easier, I think, cognitively, if the rule were that, okay, just think a little more and you're always going to be better off, or if the rule were just go with your gut instinct, you're always going to be better off. But unfortunately, that's not how it is. It really depends on the context and what it is that you want out of a decision and so on. And the point I'm making there is that once you become aware that your gut and your emotions and instincts, et cetera, do have information that's useful, worthy a lot of times. Then the idea is to be able to access those inputs to begin with, because, you know, sometimes we get emotionally deaf as a result of mind addiction, that right? we just go so far down that path that we almost become like, I don't know, data or something, right? I mean, in that Star Trek, is it? Or Star Wars? <laughs> yeah, data. Yeah. Is it data? Spock? Yeah, Star Trek. Yeah. The new Star
0: Trek, not the original Star Trek.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Not the one in which William Shatner was there, right? That's right. That's the only one I know. <laughs> Right. Maybe it was Spock in the William Shatner one. But anyway, yes, you get the point. So you get so far down that path that sometimes we even take pride in that idea that I'm completely non-emotional about things or something like that. Right. Which I think is very delusional, actually. I mean, nobody is non-emotional. As a human being, I think it would be, I mean, maybe there are some, but it's actually a condition, right? I mean, it's a disease to not know what your emotions are and not be connected with them.
0: Right. I think you have to distinguish that from mindfulness, which is, a form of detachment, but it's not the kind of detachment that is bound by some preconceptions of what constitutes thoughtfulness. One of the, my favorite stories in the book is when your kid opened up the box that had the, the toy car in it and found the box more enjoyable than the, than the car. And you're like, wait, no, no, wait, you can't do that. Like I paid money for the car. I could have just bought you a box for nothing, right? I mean, it's like you had a preconceived notion about what enjoyment had to look like.
1: Yeah, right. And mindfulness is a detached observation, but it's got to do with not the mind, right? And so it's in, in a way, it's a misnomer. I think that mindfulness seems to involve the mind, but actually it doesn't. And so the idea is to observe your emotions, observe your bodily sensations, basically live in that practice of mindfulness, however long it lasts through your senses rather than through your mind. And if you're able to do it consistently, it's a tough thing to do especially for people who are very mind addicted, even though they are the ones who really need it. But if you can pull it off, if you can, you know, what I say, pay bad attention as opposed to mind attention to things, then you start to discover many wonderful things, including that you get to, A, get back in touch with your sensations and therefore your instincts and your emotions and so on. And then you get to also realize that these emotions and instincts are actually useful. You kind of have that insight or epiphany. And this is one of those things that, You have to actually do it in order to understand it. And it's not something that's logically derivable. So if you do start to practice mindfulness and do it correctly, then you start to notice that, hey, I have a deeper understanding of why I said that thing that I said. And it was driven by my ego and my desire for attention more than because I wanted good things for everybody. You know, little insights like that, that you start to get and not just about your own behavior, but about other people too. You kind of like get down to the real self, both for you and for others and how you truly feel about things and so on. And so that's a beautiful thing. You start to then become less prone to this mind addiction of having to think through everything. And then it starts to have really good side benefits. You you sleep better because you no longer feel the need to kind of ruminate on things until you arrive at a solution to it. You have a certain faith that the solution is going to come to you through your non conscious It doesn't need to be consciously thought through for you to arrive at solutions. And so you have a certain kind of faith in life and trust in life too, because of that. Now, when you start to experience it, so it's all kind of like they build on each other in a sense, all these kind of habits that I talk about. Well, you also talk about flow and
0: sometimes you're talking about them as having similar characteristics, which they do, right? Because both of them are about present orientation. But they're different in the sense that flow is very focused on the task at hand, whereas mindfulness is really more about attentional breath, I guess you would call it. But in your discussion about flow, it kind of raises the question about how we should be thinking about happiness. In other words, happiness in the moment versus retrospective or reflective happiness. And all the folks in the happiness literature debate this. Are we looking to maximize the area under the curve or are we? looking to maximize our future happiness, right? So how should we be thinking about those trade-offs? Is the goal to basically die happy and dying happy? I remember my, um, my cousin went to West Point and the whole time he was at West Point, he was like, oh my God, this is like the worst experience of my life. It's terrible, don't come here, it's awful. But ever since he's just like, oh, it was the best time of my life, right? So if we're attentive to our contemporary happiness, then we might be sabotaging our future happiness. How can we be conscious of those trade-offs? Do we just have to learn from others and understand the, the science of the relationship? And I'm thinking in terms also the question from the employer's perspective, from the organizational design perspective, when we're teaching our classes, we're pinging our students every 15 minutes to ask them if they're enjoying the class, but we never ask the people 20 years after they graduated if they enjoyed the class. I think there's no reason to think that those two things are correlated in any way.
1: Yeah, they might correlate somewhat. I'd be surprised if they negatively correlate, but we definitely don't do that, although we do get some indication of how valuable your class was from people who have graduated a long time back and they want to get back in touch with you or want to meet you for a coffee or something like that. Then you know that you really are making a kind of a long-term difference and the kind of reflective happiness, so to speak, has been high for the course. It's one of the most prevalent and important dilemmas, right? Which should I maximize? The present happiness? Should I just sleep and laze and, you know, binge watch Netflix, which I think will make me happy and at least engrossed in something right now? Or should I read that paper and prepare for tomorrow's presentation, which is really aversive and involves a lot of cognitive effort and work? What should I do? So my simple response to that is that, look, by and large, I think that one should focus on enjoying the moment, the process of doing things. And that in turn means that choose a line of work in which by and large, you're going to enjoy whatever it is that work calls if you like reading papers, then it won't seem as aversive and it won't seem like binge watching on Netflix is far, far superior in terms of happiness. I think there's going to be times when that's true, but there'll also be lots of times in which you prefer to kind of read a paper and prepare for the presentation and so on. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that if you're below the poverty line and you're struggling for basic needs, then I do think that you need to worry about the future. You do want to do things right now that might be aversive, but will get you above that basic line. I think that's a very important qualifier to or asterisk to it. But the big point is that you shouldn't be sacrificing your, in my opinion, right? You shouldn't be sacrificing your current present happiness if the reason for doing it is so that you can achieve these extrinsic goals of fame, money, power, later. If the reason why you're sacrificing your current happiness is so that you can get to achieve healthier relationships in the future, get into flow states more often in the future, get to have a degree of internal control and be less mind addicted and so on. So if you put in work now in order to inculcate those habits as opposed to those sins, then I do think that it's worth sacrificing present happiness for future happiness. Otherwise not in my book.
0: And your book also comes with a lot of different quizzes, questionnaires, tests, evaluations, and so forth. And it seems like a theme that goes throughout the book is really that of self-knowledge. It's about understanding yourself, understanding yourself in a sophisticated way so that you can make choices both about how you think about things, how you label things, but also make choices about the environments in which you select and the activities that you engage in. This seems like just a deeply philosophical project, practical philosophical project. And it kind of makes me wonder why isn't this sort of part of the curriculum of every business school? If we were training an athlete and we just decided, all right, well, no stretching, no weightlifting, no running drills, right? None of this stuff. We're just going to throw you out there to play football. It seems like this should be an integral part of the curriculum. I mean, we have like mindfulness clubs here at Berkeley, Stanford. And it's kind of student run and people kind of do this stuff on the side. I I helped the students to create this club here at Berkeley. But why is this not part of the formal education? Is it just that we don't have enough academic research to support it yet? Or is it that it's too practical? What's the obstacle here?
1: I think it's a good question. I don't really have big answers to it. I think that if you look at the arc of human history to the extent that I know, and I don't know a lot, right, but to the extent I know history and the evolution of cultures and so on, it seems like the Greeks and the ancient Indians, for sure, and maybe the other cultures too, paid more attention to these so-called values and ethics and things like that, which is more closer to these kinds of topics, philosophy in general, for example, right? Certainly the Greeks paid a lot of attention to it, and it was very important for people who were elected into offices and political positions to be well-versed in this and grounded in this before they ventured into that. And I think that maybe there were some negatives to that in the sense that it wasn't as egalitarian and there was a tendency for people who had access to education to then also control power and resources and money and so on. And in a way, I mean, the democratization of societies and the political ideology of democracy, that anybody could be a leader and anybody could be in any position, kind of made that angle less important. And I think Along with that came maybe industrialization, where it was very important to control the environment and resources in order to build stuff so that we could lead more comfortable lives and everybody wanted that. And so all of that ethics and, and morality and happiness and more the kind of life skills got pushed to the side a little bit, I think. And now we're at a point where it's maybe coming to bite us in the back a little bit, where we have all those extrinsic things and we have people in power that are, could be from anywhere, et cetera. But not necessarily a good state of the world in terms of happiness. And so we're kind of realizing this is important. And at least uh, this is a substream of people who are really focused on this. So it's just a grand dance, right? At a kind of a universal level and a mm-hmm. long arc of things. In my reading, some of this has been going on. And from my point of view, even forgetting societal impact, I think if you just start with the standpoint of, okay, I wanna be happy, or I wanna lead a more meaningful, life what should i do i think that you would arrive at the answer that it's not enough to just be skilled at controlling other people and controlling resources and achieving these extrinsic goals it's also important to embark on a journey of self-awareness and self-discovery and introspection and understanding why do you want these things in the first place and at what cost do they come if you pursue them one way or the other and so on and so that level of authentic seeking of the truth to what really is the determinant of happiness as opposed to the fake determinants of happiness, I think is a very important starting point. And in a way, I think that in this grand dance, we have come to a situation in which a lot of the things that we assumed would make us happier, namely more comfort, more ability to travel and living in richer homes and et cetera. I think a higher number of people than was ever the case in the past are discovering it as a personally experienced truth that more of those things don't make me happier. And so we have more of the authentic seekers, I feel now, than used to be the case. And so we have ended up at this point through taking this meandering path, which has caused a lot of upheavals and angst and maybe at a higher level, circling back to where the Greeks were and and focusing more on the softer side of things, if you will, or intrinsic side of things as opposed to extrinsic side of things. Short answer to your question, I do obviously believe that. It is very important that people at least get an opportunity to get exposed to these topics. And I personally am happy that I get to play the small role at the university that I am at that's given me this opportunity.
0: Well, I think as more and more people start to realize this, they become more careful consumers of where they choose to work, for instance. And the companies are now promising, at least, that they offer bits and pieces of whether it be belonging or or mastery or autonomy. And, And I guess the question is, is there an inherent tension there when companies say that they're offering these things? Is it necessarily at the expense of profitability or or is it that they're in alignment? You're going to ultimately be more successful as a company, more profitable as a company if you can offer an employment environment where people can thrive. I think in the book, you kind of start thinking about, hey, what would this be like if McDonald's did this, right? Maybe we wouldn't have any burger flippers, but you know, as somebody who worked as, as a cook for a while, like there's a, mindful way of flipping burgers there's a way to get into the flow there and and a way that you can really enjoy putting food on people's tables right is there an inherent tension or is this something which is ultimately reconcilable are the pressure of shareholder performance and so forth ultimately going to squeeze out any efforts to create a workplace that encourages fulfillment happiness autonomy so forth
1: So if you take two organizations, both of which have similar characteristics in terms of employee profile intelligence, et cetera, but one of the organizations really, really deeply, authentically cares for its employees and wants to foster a culture and environment of well-being and happiness and support and belonging and so on and so forth, place a bet on that organization to succeed in the long run.
0: Well, as long as the employees are educated enough to know that they shouldn't just pursue the maximum pay package, let's say.
1: Right. So that's why I'm saying that on all those dimensions of talent and how important it is to succeed, et cetera, let's say they're equal, right? In both organizations, but one of the organizations just cares deeply and really wants to make it a very happy place. I do think that that organization is going to succeed. And the reason it's going to succeed is because what is that John Kennedy's quote, right? A divided house, or was it Abraham Lincoln? Lincoln. Is it Lincoln? Yeah. Right. So you want to compete against the competitors, but inside the organization, you want to cooperate. Really, as a leader, you know, you want every part to be pulling in the same direction rather than an internecine war in which everyone's trying to one up the other person. You don't want that in an organization. So, in a happy organization, it's more likely to be like a family where people really do deeply care about each other and will take care of each other and jump to rescue somebody who's facing an emergency situation and so on. So I don't think that there is an inherent tension there, in my opinion, in the sense that if you have built a happy organization, I don't think that that means that you're not going to do well. I think if anything, you're going to probably do well. The question is that given some practical constraints, and I referred to this earlier, right? Most organizations are shaped like a pyramid. And given that constraint, How much can an organization really promote a sense of being part of the same family if the reality is only one person out of, say, 20 is going to get promoted next year? How can you manage to do it? I think that it's going to be very tough, obviously, but you can do certain things that mitigates that sense of kind of scarcity and competition, unhealthy competition, and foster a sense of family orientation and belonging. Well, for one thing, you can just help
0: those people that don't get the promotion to find other jobs. Yeah, sure. If If you you want to leave, yeah. You don't treat them as outcasts. You're like, oh, well, hey, you're an alum. We, we're gonna help you find that job
1: somewhere else. Right, and maybe they don't wanna leave, right? I think that that might be the first thing that you do is even though they're not promoted, but they're talented and you know that, that they're good for the organization, you try and retain them.
0: Some companies have this like individual contributor track where it's just like, hey, you're, you're never gonna be part of line management. That's not your thing. They'll just keep promoting you through this, say, software engineer track, right? Sure,
1: yeah. I mean, there's different ways of approaching it and some of these ways might not be negative for the person concerned. They realize that I can never really be a people person. I know it inside of me. And so I could never be, for example, the chief marketing officer. You know, I might be a chief technology officer perhaps, but even a CTO deals with other people, right, inside the organization. So they just realize that I'm best off being left alone, but maybe you can pay them a lot, right? Pay them just as much as the CTO gets because they're really talented in what to do, and they bring a lot of things to the company. But back to your question, I don't think that there's necessarily inherently a tension there. I think that you can focus on the well-being of employees and yet be successful. If anything, I think that they go together, in my opinion.
0: Well, Raj, thank you so much for joining me. Remember, the book is, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? So the goal is to be smart and happy, and I think this book will help you. Also, the course on Coursera, which everyone should check out. And also, there's a website, right?
1: happysmarts.com. Happy Smarts.
0: Yeah. Which allows you to access a lot of the tools that are in the book. Also, I think you can even get yourself a copy of the book if you can't afford a book. So thank you so much. Appreciate it, Raj. Hope to chat again soon.
1: All righty. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. This was a very stimulating, interesting. I I didn't realize how quickly the hour had passed. So thank you very much.
0: Sure. Talk again soon.
1: All righty. Take care.